For those who don't know me, my name is Stephen, as Tom said, uh, and I'm currently training uh, at Oak Hill Theological College for Ordination in the Church of England, married to Nikki, uh, one-year-old daughter called Emmy. Now, almost every day of the week, if I'm working away in my study at college, at some point in the afternoon, I'll stroll on down the stairs to the student common room to make myself a coffee. I'll grind the beans, pour them into the cafetiere, fill it with water and wait for it to brew. And every time I do this, I'm met with the same problem. Right there on the counter, right next to the coffee, is the tuck shop. It's just a box sitting there on the side that gets periodically topped up with delicious treats. And I can tell you it takes every ounce of self-control in my being not to take something from that box. Something that will help me to work hard through the afternoon on my essays and so on. In fact, one of my uh, courses is in, is in the language Hebrew. And one of the, there's a word in Hebrew that's pronounced ode, which means again, and you always need a sort of hooks to help you remember them. And the way I remember that word is by thinking, I owed money to the tuck shop again. When I come face to face with a box full of Cadbury's dairy milk, Mars bars and Maltesers, I need every last bit of self-control I can muster if I'm going to avoid taking something out of the box. And that, of course, is what self-control is for, isn't it? For stopping yourself from doing something that you really want to do. Whether that's related to food we eat, the things we watch, or anything else we do, anything we say. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and it is vital in the process of sanctification, of us becoming more like Jesus. So Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 5, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. Self-control is a major part of our fight against sin. In our battle to put off the old self and to put on the new self. To become more like Jesus. <clears throat> but self-control is not the end goal of sanctification. The end goal of sanctification is a changed heart. <clears throat> In other words, not that you would be able to resist doing things you want to do, but rather that you wouldn't be, want to do them anymore at all. We had a guy called Vaughan Roberts at college this week at Oak Hill for a teaching day. He's the vicar of a church in Oxford. And he said this, Discipline is vital. Desire is fundamental. As we've seen so far in James's letter, it seems there was a tendency amongst the churches he was writing to for people to say they believed in Jesus, but to not live as Christians. So he's addressed the double-minded, those who ignore what God says, those who don't care about the poor, who, who, uh, who don't obey God's word, and in our passage today, 
James moves on to the way we use our tongues. And in his logic, it is completely linked to this idea of being double-minded that he mentioned in chapter 1. I heard somebody say this week that when James talks about sins of the tongue, he pulls out all the stops. It's arguable that sins of the tongue are considered worse than sexual sins in Scripture. We need to learn to be horrified by them the way God is. Clearly, amongst the churches that James was writing to, people were speaking in ways which caused great harm. But as James addresses the issue, he doesn't just tell them to watch what they say. He uses some of the strongest language to explain how serious the issue is, how dangerous our tongues are, and how deep the problem goes. You'll see at the top of the sermon outline there, and there are two verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 4, verses 23 and 24 say, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. The words that come out of our mouths are a symptom of the state of our hearts. And that means that self-control is going to be important as we learn to control our tongues. But it isn't going to be sufficient. Because as well as tamed tongues, we need changed hearts. You'll see there on the green sheet two points that we're going to work through. Uh, It will help you to have your Bibles open to James 3 as we work through them. And the first thing that God is saying to us in this passage is, your tongue needs controlling. We all know the famous saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Said to many an upset child, it couldn't be more untrue, could it? The damage done by words goes far deeper and takes much longer to heal than most broken bones do. I doubt anyone here needs reminding of that particularly. I suspect most of us don't need to think that far back to the last time somebody said something that hurt us. And yet at the same time, all of us will still be carrying the pain of words said to us years ago. Words are powerful things. God created the world using words. He gives us new life through his words. And as those made in his image, our words are significant. It was through the words of the serpent in Genesis 3 that sin first entered the world. And one of the biggest ways that sin, the impact of sin, is felt in the world is through the way sinful human beings use their tongues. James's big point through these verses is that the tongue is a dangerous weapon. And those who use their tongues to say they believe in Jesus should not be those who use their tongues to cause harm. In particular, James draws our attention to the fact that its power is all out of proportion with its size. 
And so in verses 3 to 5, where we're going to start, he uses a series of illustrations to help us see this. And first up in verse 3 is the horse, which I know absolutely nothing about. But my quick Google search tells me that they can weigh up to 1,000 kilograms. Did you know that? Horses can weigh nearly 1,000 kilograms. And I also learned that the way they add a handicap in some types of horse racing is by making the horses carry weights while they race, related to how good they are, basically. And top of the country life list of the 50 greatest horses ever, which does exist, uh, is a horse called Arkle, who won the 1964 Irish Grand National while carrying a weight of 12 stone on his back, not including the rider, just they added 12 stone to his back, which was two and a half stone more than any other horse in the race. And he still won. And yet, a horse as powerful as that can be controlled just by putting a bit in their mouth, which weighs about one pound. Second up in verse four is the ship, which I also know hardly anything about. Uh, but again, a bit of reading has informed me that one of the biggest ships in the world is the US aircraft carrier, USS Eisenhower. It weighs over 91,000 tons, it's nearly 1,100 feet in length, has a nuclear power, 280,000 horsepower engine, and now we know how powerful horses are, and carries nearly 100 aircraft. And it's steered by two rudders that are just under 30 feet long. Now, of course, a 30-foot piece of metal is actually massive, but to, to steer a ship that's over 1,000 feet long Sometimes, James says, small things are powerful far beyond what you'd expect from their size. And so it is with the tongue. And sadly, the mighty power of the tongue is so often used for destruction. To tear people down rather than to build them up. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Now, we're all too familiar with that image of a forest fire following the devastation we've seen in Australia recently. But that is James's third image for us. Because a fire like those we've seen in Australia, sadly, can be sparked by something as small as a cigarette thrown to the ground or a camping stove falling over. And just like that, verse 6, the tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The language James uses here is designed to shock us. The tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It's set on fire 
by hell. Our hearts are naturally inclined to listen to the words of the serpents rather than the words of God. And so from our hearts, deadly poison flows out of our mouths and damages the people around us. It is a restless evil, James says. I wonder if we consider the words we say to be as serious as James does. We need to learn to be horrified by the deadly poison of the tongue, the way God is. Perhaps you remember it, in 2010, Gordon Brown was out on the campaign trail ahead of the general election. And following an exchange with Gillian Duffy in Rochdale, he got back into his car, not realizing he was still wearing a Sky News microphone, which picked him up referring to her as a bigoted woman. Now, obviously, he was lampooned for this in the media. But how glad are you that the things you say aren't picked up by microphones and broadcast on national television? A good friend of mine, uh, Emmy's godfather, worked for a few months behind a desk for the NHS. And he more than once during those months, he lamented to me how distressing he found the level of gossiping and complaining that went on in that office. People speaking about each other behind their backs, complaining about bosses, about family members. And it's so easy, even natural, isn't it, to use our tongues this way. I'm sure many of you work in environments not dissimilar to my friend's office. And I have no doubt that all of us at one time or other, tend to get whipped up into these conversations, don't we, if we're not careful. The tongue is a small part of the body, about 0.001% of your body mass. But it makes great boasts. As much as we have all been hurt by the tongues of others, we will each have delivered plenty of damage of our own. All kinds of animals have been tamed by man, but not the tongue. And James says to you, God says to you, if you use your tongue to say you believe in Jesus, you must not use it to damage others. Your tongue needs controlling. Verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And that brings us to our second point this evening. Your tongue needs controlling and your heart needs changing. Reading on from verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. 
James gives us two more illustrations here, and both of them are impossible. If you go to pick fruit from a fig tree, you're not going to find any olives. And if you go to a grapevine, you're not going to find any figs. In the same way, a spring can't produce both fresh water and salt water at the same time. James is picking up here on what we heard his brother Jesus say in our first reading earlier on. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. How often have you said, or have you heard others say, something they really shouldn't have done? And follow it up with, I'm sorry, that wasn't really me, I'm just tired, or I'm just frustrated. But the thing is, just as fig trees produce figs, not olives, so the words that come from your mouth are evidence of what is in your heart. Which means that no matter how much you try to tame your tongue, no matter how much self-control you can muster, however disciplined you are, if your heart isn't changed, if you don't find yourself with new desires, then your tongue will continue to spill out deadly poison. Especially when you're tired and frustrated and your guard goes down and the real you spills out. I think this is kind of some of the logic behind verses 1 and 2, which we haven't looked at where James singles out teachers. Those who lead churches have a particularly word-based role. And their words have a particularly large impact on the church, on God's people. And so not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his body in check. <clears throat> now we might think then that no one should want to be a teacher at all. But that's not really the point of what James is saying. The point is that not just anyone should be getting up the front and leading the church. There needs to be real heart change. Real evidence that there is no double-mindedness going on. A real change in desires that flows out in a tamed tongue that praises our Lord and Father but doesn't curse other people. And that is exactly what we heard God promise in our opening verse, isn't it? And that's exactly what God has delivered through the work of the Son and the Spirit. Through the death of Christ on the cross, our sin has been defeated. And so if we're trusting in him... The Spirit is at work in us to change our hearts. Which means that by the power of the Spirit, we can see real change. We can begin to tame our tongues. In verse 8, James told us that no man can tame the tongue. But there is someone who can the one who can break into our hearts and change our desires, redirect them away from the lies of the serpent, back to the truth of God, so that what flows out of our hearts is no longer deadly poison. Which means that these impossible illustrations of fig trees and salt water 
aren't here to make us despair. They're not designed to make us think, am I really a Christian then? No, these impossible images should make us cry out, Lord, please change my heart. Because it's only real, genuine heart change that will lead to a tamed tongue. And that is exactly what God promises to do for us if we trust in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father, we praise you that through the death of your son Jesus, we have been saved from sin. The power of sin over us has been broken. And we pray, please, that by the work of your spirit in our hearts, you would shape our desires such that we would not be those who are double-minded, but those who, with our hearts directed towards you, speak well of others and do not use our tongue for destruction. Amen.